Today's scripture reading comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 12, verses 27 to 31. Once again, that's 1 Corinthians, chapter 12, verses 27 to 31. If you do not have a Bible with you, you can find one in the seat in front of you, and you can find today's passage on page 902. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I see most of you are still wearing masks, even though the CDC did make that announcement. If you're doubly vaccinated two weeks out, you could take it off and we'll probably give you a more formal announcement uh, once the session can get together and decide what our next uh, phase will be. Um, but in a sense, you know, we are still trying to be the church. Uh, we're trying to follow the guidelines of uh, not the state, but really the guidelines that are stated to us in the Word of God. And so we have gone over things like how we are the church, like we heard in the prayer, like colors in a painting. Uh, one, each one compounded from the palette to make a unique but precise color. And that picture is of Christ that is painted. It's when everyone wants to be an eyeball that trouble happens. Apostle Paul asks, if the whole body were an eye... Where would be the sense of smell? You know, God arranged each member as he chose, but the Corinthians coveted these higher gifts, quote, unquote, higher gifts, the ones that stood out. And we saw how the Greek platonic influence and other pagan idolatries were brought into the body of believers, and they were being tainted. Paul, from chapter 1 of this letter, is correcting everything wrong that's going on in the church, everything wrong that the people in Corinth were doing. And so far we have seen that they were doing a lot of things wrong. When we start to think that we can choose to worship God any way we want or have ourselves be the primary rule or standard by which we judge we set ourselves up for disaster. The apostles and the prophets, by the Holy Spirit, gave us the holy written word of God that we may know what the standard is. Otherwise, it's really just a matter of individualism and more specifically expressive individualism, a state in which our current world suffers greatly from. There were different kinds of uh, individualisms that were kind of debated in the past, and especially in the 80s, so you heard of things like, you may have heard of things like 
utilitarian expressivism or individualism, or now most popular is this idea of expressive individualism. You see, the robes of society, the teachers, the people that are teaching us even now, and I believe what they have done is they have effectively and successfully changed our cultural milieu so that now we swim in this idea that if I don't get to express who I am, if I don't get to express what's inside, this is what's being taught, this is what's being lifted up, if I don't get to express who I am, then my dignity, then my identity has been done some kind of ontological harm. That means the core of my being. That's what I mean by ontological. The core of my being has been done some kind of harm. In school, you study these esoteric passages written to exude recherche, right? Uh, confidence of higher knowledge, when in reality, when you actually read it, while it may be beautifully put, it's really just putting a gold ring on a pig's snout. These base ideas are now in the mainstream. And if you somehow, this means if you somehow try to stop or even disapprove and say that I can't love who I want to love, when I want to love, how I want to love, then you have done violence to the core of my being. And the rest of us were even complicit even when we say things like, you do you. You do you, buddy. I think you do you. That phrase may encapsulate almost everything that is wrong with society today. You doing you is what you got you into this mess in the first place. How does it make any sense that you continuing to do you would now get you out? And yet this is the predominant thinking that we see all over our media space. Love who you want to love. Be who you want to be. Express your true self and don't let anyone stop you is what you'll see posted, memed, quoted, tweeted, etc. But no. No, I think there should be a restriction on who you can love. I don't think you can love and marry your own child. A month ago, someone in New York City filed suit against the city, that's right across the bridge, so that they could marry their own child. And they called it a matter of individual autonomy. And though the parent wants to remain anonymous in the suit, um, this is what they wrote. Well, they wanted to remain anonymous because it's repugnant, right? It's incest, but uh, rightfully so. But they, remind, they wanted to remain anonymous, but this is what they wrote in the suit. Quote, Through the enduring bond of marriage, two persons, whatever relationship they might otherwise have with one another, can find a greater level of expression, intimacy, and spirituality. That's what's written in the suit. This is why they are arguing that they should be able to marry their own biological child. Interestingly enough, uh, the Obergefell versus Hodges is a, it's a legal case in which the Supreme Court that you might be familiar with ruled five to four 
on June 26, 2015, effectively allowing same-sex marriage. Um, what they really did was ban any kind of state prohibition on same-sex marriage. But in the opinion written by the majority, Justice Kennedy states, and this is, you know, same-sex marriage was legalized. You saw, I think, on the news, like, everything was, like, rainbow-colored. Even the White House, the president then put, like, a rainbow a lighting on that White House and things like that. This is the opinion written by Justice Kennedy of the majority opinion. Uh, the nature of marriage, and this is what Justice uh, Kennedy writes, the nature of marriage is that through its enduring bond, two persons together can find other freedoms such as expression, intimacy, and spirituality. This is true for all persons, whatever their sexual orientation. That's exactly the words that this person wrote so that they can marry their kid. That's the same kind of thinking, logic, reasoning. And so now the suit is in New York City. I honestly think it's a troll. Um, it's just too similar to the opinion. So if you've read uh, you know, the opinion written and even the dissent written by Scalia, or Justice Scalia, you can, you can kind of see where this is all going. Um, I think um, you know, all these things are really interesting, but this is what one Manhattan family and matrimonial law attorney said in response. He, this is what he said. It's never going to fly. Uh, the closest you could come is Woody Allen, and that wasn't his daughter. It was an adopted child whom he never adopted, and it, turns people's, it still turns people's stomachs. So this is the reasoning. The main reason, maybe the only reason, according to this one lawyer, that a parent can't marry their child is because it turns people's stomachs. And that's the question. For how long? For how long? What we understand is that there are obvious restrictions on whom you can love. There are restrictions on who you could be. I know that I am not Queen Victoria. I know that I can never be Queen Victoria, no matter how much I want to be Queen Victoria. Even saying the sentence itself is absurd. But I suppose that's where we are now. We are in absurd land. But again, this is nothing really new. People didn't know who they were um, back in the Corinth uh, era when this was written too. They coveted what they thought was best they tore each other down when someone else got in the way. And this should come as no surprise. And this is why I hate social media, um, something that I suppose could be used for good. But if you know me, then you know I rant about social media a lot and quite often. But that's the real thing. That's the question. What if you have this really cool tool, right? You have this really cool tool, and it can help people, even protect people but it's mainly used to hurt people. What if the number was more like, I don't know, 90% hurt people and 10% kind of okay? You know, a few years ago, I spoke of psychologists and social scientists that try to see in their research and development how they could get you hooked on video games. This is many years ago, I gave this study in a sermon. This is how you could get hooked on video games. And long story short, here are the most basic ways that developers and creators of these games can get you hooked on these video games. Number one is envy. You'd have things where people would look at 
And they would say things like, wow, that's really cool. I really, really want that. You could strut around in your virtual world with your virtual currency or accomplishments, and it wouldn't be arbitrary. You wouldn't get it arbitrarily. You, there would be a level of skill and talent involved, of course. And just click that like button, please. Subscribe. Number two, how you get hooked on these video games, this is what these social scientists discovered was anger. Anger. You are put into a situation where you get really steamed, right? Ironically enough, there's a digital gaming distribution site called Steam. But you get so mad at times, you just want to burn down the whole world. And what they were trying to do is, we already got these two. These two are easy. It's really easy to promote envy and to promote anger. You know how you get them hooked for the rest of their lives? And here's what these developers and research analysts tried to do and where they obviously failed. They thought they, thought they could mimic love. They instituted virtual weddings. You would have all these virtual people join and celebrate you with you virtually. I kid you not, this was real. If you played video games, you know this. There were like virtual marriages where you have two avatars walking down the road and all these other avatars joining in. And um, by real, of course, I mean virtual. And of course, they could never really get to that place where they could manipulate that feeling of love. And that's why perhaps it's easier now to confuse that feeling with lust. You know, people tell me they're not addicted to social media platforms. And tell me that you can wake up and the first thing that you look at is not your phone. Tell me how many of our youth, the more malleable and softer in mind, the more impressionable, Tell me that they, if when, they don't get, when they get started on these platforms early, it not only forms their identity, it is their identity. And someone told me, in def, like a pseudo-defense, someone told me there's a guy on TikTok that just preaches the gospel. And I am telling you that you are proving the rule to me by giving me the exception. One guy. And of course, I'm sure he's an incredible influencer with millions of followers, psych, right? And perhaps this is why, maybe a little bit, we can have, now we, when we listen to the word, we can have little, maybe a little bit of trouble with things like given roles, gifts. And even if we want to submit, even if we're like, this is the word of God, I want to submit, the question and the response is, but where do I start I have no idea what my gifts are. Where do I start? Again, that kind of questioning is pointing to the glaringly obvious fact that we focus on ourselves first to find any truth and guidance. Where do I start? Where are my gifts? And I'm saying it's in the Word of God. The Holy Spirit gives us everything we need. We trust in God and we plow forward. We don't look back, but we plow forward. We don't look inward. We look upward. The Christian starts with God 
and his word. The child of God relies on the Father to teach them of his ways. And this is why we were able to get these four points last week. The church is like a body. And in the body, there is unity, point one, with a diversity of members, point two. And because each member is put in place by the sovereignty of God, point three, each and every single member of the body has dignity, point four. And dignity does not come from within, it comes from God. If it came from within, I could easily take it away by overpowering you. But God gives us our dignity. And if the Almighty gives, who can possibly take that away? Unity, diversity, sovereignty, dignity. This is unheard of in other ideologies or systems. People are not equal in other systems and governments. But in the church, this is how we are to handle ourselves. Where do you think the United States of America got its beliefs and tenets? That we as people have unalienable rights. No other power structure had ever done this before. Unalienable meant that no monarch, this is what it meant, that no monarch could take it away. You know why no king or queen can take away certain rights? Because we believe that there is a power that is over the monarch a power that is above the monarch that gave us these rights. That's why they're unalienable. Albeit now we see an ever rapidly growing resentment of the Christian faith in the West, where we jail pastors for daring to meet at church during government-sanctioned lockdowns, like in Alberta, Canada. In Alberta, Canada, the death rate from covid is in the single digits. The seven-day averages, if you look at it for the last many months, they're from like two to five. And yet, if you met in church, they would jail the pastor. This may be the first time in history when I see responses to what people are saying. Well, you should have just stayed home then, right? When I see the response of when people see these kinds of stories. This may be the first time in history where I know of where a Christian church ran from those places infected and locked themselves in their homes during a plague or pandemic. The first time in history. And with the deterioration of the church, we see a deterioration of faith and faith values and subsequently then society in general. If you don't think so, if you think I'm being all dramatic, if you don't think so, then look up all the divorce rates all over the world. The leading British law firm, Stewards, logged a 122% increase in inquiries between July and October, just those months compared to the same period last year. Charity Citizens Advice reported a spike in searches for online advice on how to end a relationship. In the U.S., a major legal uh, contract creation site recently announced a 34% rise in sales of its basic divorce agreement, according to the BBC. The world needs the church, and it needs the church to be the church as God intends it to be. Not some poor replica, 
of some secular or pagan institution, but a true representation of Christ. The painting has to be Christ. And this is what Paul reminds the church in Corinth of in verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. The church is the body of Christ and every single person, that means every single person, if you are a child of God, every single one of you is a member of the body and you have a role to play. And we went over this in length last week. But now this is here is where it gets really interesting for me. Verse 28, it says, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. In Corinth, there was a babbling crowd. There's no doubt about it. People were speaking gibberish and calling it tongue, copying Plato's idea of mania, where these expressions meant that you were somehow closer to God. And they thought it was obvious. You know, they thought it was obvious because God is way above you, right? God is way above us, even and maybe especially intellect-wise. So if he gives you some prophetic vision and it all, comes, all that comes out of you is babble, it shouldn't surprise you is what they thought. Someone recently sent me a video clip of a sermon uh, by an NAR preacher, NAR meaning New Apostolic Reformation preacher. His name is Todd White, saying exactly what I just said. And he said, God is smarter than you, so if he gives you weird things to say, say it in a sense. To him, that was praying in the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit to him is praying in tongue. It is, of course, not the case. Praying in tongue is not praying in the Spirit. Anyone who truly prays, prays in the Spirit because it is only by the Spirit that we can truly pray. The Puritan minister William Gurnall would say, looking at texts like Ephesians 6.18, he would say, prayer is the creature's act, but the Spirit's gift. And that true prayer is not earned like other things in the world by honing certain techniques, right? He goes, it is an ever gift of grace. The NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation Movement, is of course a heretical movement that has gained much traction in recent years with powerhouses like Bethel Church in the forefront of its movement. They believe that apostles and prophets still exist today and that these apostles and prophets govern the church and its movements. They believe that there is extra-biblical revelation, meaning that God reveals his will beyond Scripture, among many other egregious errors. And we have charismatic churches that teach tongue now. You go into a dark room, music is usually playing, they teach you what to say and how to say it. Not only that, they teach you how to sway, like move back and forth. Perhaps, I mean, if you are reasoning, if it really is a gift, then shouldn't we practice it? That's precisely right. If a gift is something that I can strive for and attain, then I should practice it hone it like any other skill. So why not a prayer room where they teach you how to say shalala? And why not a school then where they teach you how to perform healings and other miracles? 
which they have. Too bad none of these things are biblical. We receive spiritual gifts, meaning they are, what's gift mean? It means they are undeserved. They come by His grace and His appointment. And that's exactly what is emphasized here in this verse. God has appointed in the church. That's what we read. God has appointed in the church. And then Paul goes down in order. And in the ancient world, order was significant. So God is appointed in the church, and he goes down in order of significance. You always put the greater first. And so we saw a glimpse of this in the earlier verses of this chapter, but here Paul makes it overt. First, apostles. Second, prophets, and so on. All the way down to the last. What's last on this list? It's glossa, languages. Tongues, something that the Corinthians had coveted so much that they put it even above the prophet and teacher. But Paul puts it last. Here's one of the few places where there is a listing of sorts of spiritual gifts. There are other lists, like in Romans 12, Ephesians 4. But I want to tell you that no list is the same. And some would try to take all these lists, right? They take the Ephesians list, they take the Romans list, they take the 1 Corinthians list, and they would try to like make like a hodgepodge, like, oh, this, this is like a map, you know, and the treasure. And so they try to piece it together. But perhaps Paul didn't give an exhaustive list of gifts because that would have been exhausting. And secondly, Perhaps because you would be missing the point of gifts and the dignity that each member of the body possesses. Perhaps he didn't scatter the gifts in lists in various places like a map he put together, but rather each list then has a context and a lesson for teaching, like this one, like this list. He puts apostles, prophets, and teachers in that order. And then there's a, a then, if you're reading it, or if you've read it, if you remember it, there's a, a then in front of the next two items. The then is a good translation, because in the Greek, there's actually a word then in there. The then in Greek means that there's a sequence of events or time that you want to mark. So it's like a marker, right? So prophets, uh, apostles, prophets, teachers, and then a marker to point to the roles before. Remember, we talked about the validation of authority that was given through signs and miracles. And so we have that here. Miracles and gifts of healing to validate the apostles and prophets and even other teachers at the time. After that, he continues on, and it seems almost mundane, almost commonplace and boring, right? You have these gifts of miracles, the shows of power, and there's powerful figures that are behind it, that were marked by them. And then right after that, what do you have? Helping, administrating, and all the way on the bottom of that list, tongues, glossa, languages. But what is helping? Helping is the ability to give aid. What seems mundane at first glance is pivotal to the church. How many times have you come and received aid it may not have been fancy or showy, but wasn't it vital to your faith? Wasn't it? That's helping. Administrating is to guide or steer. 
Without leaders giving that direction, we, uh, we would have no building, we would have no ministries, we would have no order. And I would say that is quite important as well. And then you have this line, and various kinds of tongue. Various kinds of tongues. This comes from two Greek words, genos and glossa. Glossa, we know, means languages, and genos means kind. Kind. What does kind mean? It means descended, like kindred, that kind of kind, right? Descended. It's from somewhere. That's what it means. Various kinds of tongues means it's a tongue that comes from somewhere. Every language on earth is from somewhere because every word means something. This is why I find it very hard to believe that if you are repeating gibberish, it's not tongue. Because what does it mean? If it's from somewhere, it means something. And you can't give the excuse that, well, you're saying only what God knows. There was never a time when God spoke in the Bible. There are other extra-biblical, heretical works that I'm sure that happens. But there was never a time in our Bible where God spoke and no one knew what it meant because he spoke something unintelligible. Even when the finger of God wrote on the wall, mene, mene, tekel, parson, even when the finger of God wrote on the wall, people scrambled desperately to what? People scrambled desperately to find out what it meant. The king offered the highest seat in the land for its translation. You find out what mene, mene, tekel, parson means, and I'll give you the highest seat in the land, is what the king said. And Daniel translates it. I don't see much of that attitude now from the charismatics. I would gather that back then, that they didn't have Google Translate at the time, and because the gospel was being preached to various groups of people in big cities like Corinth, you have various kinds of languages or tongues. And so he's going to comment on tongues a lot in the next two chapters as well, especially in chapter 14. This is why I do believe that we, a lot of us, we have it wrong. And he continues on. He doesn't stop there. In verse 29, he says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret. The obvious answer to all of these questions are no. These rhetorical questions are in succession, and it feels almost aggressive. If you're going to really ask a rhetorical question, one or two is good. Five, six, seven, let's, let's, let's get real here. What, what, there, is there a problem? That's what you will be thinking. And notice the two gifts in the, in the rhetorical questioning. Notice the two gifts he lives, leaves out from the list before, helping an admin. He leaves out these two. And through this line of rhetorical questioning, he is stressing what? He is stressing the principle of divine selectivity. It is God who selects, not you because you want it so bad. And having said this, stressing the importance of divine sovereignty and gifts, not just in the previous verse, but all throughout the chapter, we come to this final verse in the chapter but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. 
weight. You spend a lot of energy, Vuge, a lot of spit. It's all over your iPad. Saying that there wasn't supposed to be any kind of seeking of gifts. You're not supposed to seek gifts. Why is Paul telling us now to eagerly desire the higher gifts? First, in regard to divine selection, there is no commentator, by the way, who doesn't think that's the case. That's not the case, rather. This is divine selection. He's, Paul is telling. It's God who chooses. That's clearly the context here. From reading Paul's writing, that is the glaringly overt point he's trying to make. So why does it seem that he's contradicting himself by saying desire the higher gifts? I don't think he is. And there is maybe one other way to read the verse, meaning like don't seek tongues, but you know, you could read it this way. Don't seek tongues, but seek higher gifts like admin. But I still don't think that cuts it because it's still seeking and that would undercut everything he's been saying so far. This is where I'm going to do a little bit of a word study with you. Earnestly desire. That's translated from one Greek word. That one Greek word is zelu, okay? Zelu. Zelu means to be jealous, zealous, envy, or covet. Zelu, that's what it means. Zelu occurs 14 times in the New Testament. And almost every single time it's used, it's used in a negative sense. Negative sense. The three other times were just neutral, but they were never used in a positive light. I'll give you an example. In Acts 7 9, it says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. And the patriarchs, Zelu of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with them. This is a negative word. James 4.2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You zelu and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. In fact, zelu is never translated as earnestly desire except three times, and it occurs just here in 1 Corinthians. There is a Fourth, so Zelu comes out four times in 1 Corinthians. Three times it's translated as earnestly desire. But the fourth time it occurs, it occurs in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. Love is patient and kind. Love does not Zelu or boast. It is not arrogant. Zelu is a negative term. So the Greek tense, so now that I've established Zelu, it's important. The Greek tense is either indicative or imperative. In the Greek, ancient Greek, they're both written the same way, so it could be written indicatively or imperatively. So while we read it and translate it imperatively, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, that's like an imperative, it could be read as an indicative. But you earnestly desire the higher gifts. But you covet the higher gifts. The indicative then will be more plausible in this situation because he immediately goes and makes a contrasting statement. And I will show you a still more excellent way. Still means even to a greater degree. You desire these higher gifts, but I will show you something that's even more excellent. I think the indicative makes more sense, but I still 
I still don't discount the imperative because, you know, he could be being sarcastic. Yeah, you go on searching for those showy gifts. Either way, you put it in context, the church was severely abusing the gifts, doing whatever they wanted and letting envy and lust control their desires. Not what Paul had been emphasizing. The church should be a unified body full of diverse giftings according to the Holy Spirit's dispensation where you have no one looking down on any other member because these roles were God-given, no matter how showy or humble they are. Because I think this is the real question. What lasts? You know, if God is going to give something to the church, what lasts? What builds? And even after reading just chapter 12, does lusting after the showy gifts last? Does envying, coveting these higher so-called gifts, do they build? And if they do, what are they building? You know, Aristotle, many hundreds, hundreds of years before this was written, would write about how power shows the man. Power shows the man. So you want to know if someone is corrupt? You want to know if someone is corrupt? Give them a little power. Give them a little power. Then you'll see. What this is really pointing to is what I see in the church, especially this church, as we follow God and his commands, as we're resting on his promises, as we are believing all that he has shown us in his word, what is really going on is we are being slowly transformed. We are being slowly transformed. You may think the mundane and the commonplace are not exciting. You know, I'd rather have smokes and flares and lights and things like that. Funny stories that you could walk home with. What I've realized is, you know, this is true for almost area of life. Um, we have in our staff a pseudo bodybuilder. <clears throat> Ah, oh, that was pause for effect. Anyway, um, this person eats very healthy. The, pers- uh, the, the food that I see him eat every day looks so tasteless. I wouldn't want to eat the food that he eats. But he has a purpose. He knows what he wants to intake because he knows what that will output. And it's when we just consume fries or chips, and we all know this, if we consume only fast food, our bodies will not be able to output and produce what we want to. And even though it's a little mundane or commonplace, those are the things that are the healthiest, and that will transform your body into what our staff's body looks like now, the pseudo-bodybuilder. But I think this is what's happening to us spiritually. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes there's some great stuff in the Word that we get. It's exciting. It's good stuff. Like, wow, painting picture. That's amazing, right? Sometimes it could just be the mundane. Like, if there's temptation, flee. If there's temptation, turn off your phone. If there's temptation, stop looking at it. Stop going toward it. Stop lifting it up. And if someone else is lifting it up, don't, don't, don't be complicit Don't be like, that's fine, you do you. That's not what we do. It could be mundane. It could be something commonplace. But that's what's going to build muscle. 
And I think that's what we need. And I see our church slowly being transformed. I joke around a lot about this, but 10 years ago, I wasn't the head pastor 10 years ago, but 10 years ago, I remember giving a sermon where someone here made the comment, when P.U. speaks, he speaks, he speaks so long, right? Because I think I spoke that time, I, sp- I think I spoke for 25 minutes, but they were used to 20-minute sermons. So long, right? <clears throat> how, long, how far we've come from 25 minutes being so long, where now we are hungering for the Word of God, where we open the Scriptures and all of our hearts are burning and desiring to know what God is teaching us in the Word through His Spirit. And when we walk out, for some reason, we recognize that the promise of God, the peace of God being upon us, with us, when we walk out, it still stays with us because that's what's written in the Word. That's what we've learned. That's what we're following and obeying. Don't you see the strength? We should praise God for the mundane. You should praise God for the spiritual egg whites and things like that. I want to close with this. Romans chapter 5, it says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We know, knowing that suffering produces endurance, that endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We'll suffer. It's not easy. It's not easy living the Christian ideals in today's society. I mean, it doesn't matter where you go. In some places in the world, you could be killed. You could be jailed. You could have everything taken away from you, like uh, this Chinese pastor who was jailed for a year plus, and his wife just got out. You could be ostracized in society. You might not reach your secular goals. People might not like your posts as much. When you talk about faith, they'll say things like, I didn't follow, follow you so that you could preach Christ to me. We could suffer in various degrees, but... The promise we have is that we, while we have sufferings, we can rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces endurance. You're getting stronger. You're building muscle. And this is not just physical muscle. This is spiritual muscle. And you'll start to endure. And did you know, do you know that as we endure... We are enduring how? By acting as members of the body. It's not just the showy gifts. And I don't think the showy gifts do that. But I'm talking about what the world considers mundane and maybe even unimportant. These, these gifts, when we act on it, this endurance, it builds character. as something sorely lacking in our society today. Character. You know, character in the Greek means to impress. It literally means to tattoo. This character is something that you can't take away because it's embedded in you. This is what God wants for his people. So this endurance builds character and the character produces hope. Hope isn't being 
optimistic. Look at me. I'm not an optimistic guy, but I'm a hopeful guy because hope is putting your trust and faith in what God has said he will do. Then I take it, that's a sure thing. That's 100% that's going to happen. So if we place our hope and trust in him, it's not going to be put to shame. It's not going to be put to shame because it's God's love that is being poured out into us. And this is what we'll see next week. This character building, this endurance, even from the suffering that we take, is going to produce in us hope because we have God's love that has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. This is why Christ's good news is the good news. It's good news that trumps any other kind of news there is because no one else can even offer it. They can promise it, perhaps, but can, they can never produce it. But this is what has been assured to us because it's been shown to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ literally is the evidence that we have been shown that we can have what God has promised his people. So keep your faith in the one that has suffered, that has endured, that has produced this character that we can also follow. Put your trust in Jesus Christ because he is our hope and he gives us his love never ending. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that you give us. And we pray now asking for just forgiveness for the times where we would even, maybe subconsciously even, manipulated the word to suit our own desires, our own egos, our own lust for power and recognition. Rather now, O oh God, help us humbly to accept the positions that you've given us to serve diligently to really act as a member of this church so that we could build muscle, be a part of what you have designed us to be. We thank you, God, that this hope is not unfounded, it is not failing, but is ever assured to us in Jesus Christ. Let's take this time to pray and lift up our prayers to God and lift up a prayer saying, telling God, asking God to lead you by his Holy Spirit. And let's also pray that God continue to lead our church as a whole, that he will continue to teach us through his word and we would joyfully submit to it. Let's pray.